Hey everyone, a few words before we get talking. This is our 200th episode of The Energy Gang. We say it all the time, but we can't say it enough. Thank you for listening. Some of you have been with us from the very beginning. Many of you are a little newer. However long you've been a listener of the show, we're happy to have you alongside us trying to understand this wild energy transition we all find ourselves in the middle of. Second, we're going to be off for the next three weeks after today's show. I will uh, be getting married and then off on my honeymoon. So we're going to be taking a break and be back on the week of October 23rd. Fear not, you can still get your energy fixed by subscribing to The Interchange, the podcast I host with Shale Khan. That's more of an interview-based show where we deliberate some of the big themes guiding this industry. Just look for The Interchange anywhere you get podcasts. Finally, we can't forget our sponsor, Mission Solar Energy, a solar module manufacturer based right here in America. Mission Solar Modules are designed, engineered, and assembled in its Texas-based 200-megawatt facility, and they serve residential, commercial, government, and utility applications. Adhering to strictest quality standards, Mission Solar's modules outperform competition in real-world conditions, proving to be an easy choice for installers, distributors, and developers. To find out more about Mission's high-powered, American-quality modules, visit missionsolar.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. For our 200th episode, we're going to look back over the last four years and reflect on the biggest changes we saw coming and didn't see coming since the podcast started. We'll also crowdsource some of your thoughts. And I've got a couple co-hosts here you may have heard of, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. By my rough calculation, I've spent about 350 hours behind the microphone with both of these folks over the years, which is probably more hours than all the vertical axis wind turbines, cellulosic biofuel refineries, and carbon capture facilities have operated combined over that same time period. Catherine is the co-founder and partner with 38 North Solutions in Washington. Happy 200. Thank you. That's definitely longer than I've spent than a lot with a lot of members of my family. <laughs> Our first episode was on June 6, 2013. Do you remember what you were working on that week? Yeah, I was actually, well, I don't know about that p- specific day. You were spending it with your family for the last time. <laughs> I know, I was bidding adieu. Jigger and I became um, a new Right. No, I was definitely working on figuring out how we deal with solar and when tax credits. Because remember that first episode, we talked about tax reform, and I was trying to figure out how do we get these things phased down and out so that we can get them off of, the, off of everybody's hit list. But the industry was, it was too soon. Jigger's the president of Generate Capital. Happy 200 to you. Do you remember what your big projects were at that time? I was setting up Generate Capital. We were right in the middle of, you know, meeting and scheming for the first time with uh, my partner, Scott Jacobs and Matan Friedman. I remember we met in New York City at the Trump Hotel in Soho. Well, that's irony. Yeah. Tell me about it. Little <laughs> did I know that my contribution that day was going to lead to his presidency. <laughs> Before we continue our reflections, I want to start off with a different conversation, a conversation about Puerto Rico. The U.S. territory is facing unspeakable devastation after Hurricanes Irma and Maria. Devastation made worse by a bankrupt utility and an American government slow to send help. Given the scope of the crisis there, which is in large part an energy crisis, it makes sense to begin the show there. Jigger, Puerto Rico is in near-complete blackout, uh, and in 
up until I think only hours ago was being denied fuel because of shipping restrictions. Who knows how long it'll take to get the power back on. What do we know about the scope of Puerto Rico's energy problems post-hurricane? Well, you know, I think it's important to note that, you know, Puerto Rico was obviously already in bad shape after Irma. And then when Maria came in, it the way it was described to me was it was like a tornado, basically, you know, with a 50 mile radius went through the entire island. And so it just devastated everything. There was a map on Vox around um, which areas had cell phone service. And basically, I think it was like two small counties um, actually had only 60 to 80 percent outages instead of 80 to 100 percent outages. Um, yeah, we have really close friends there, and they. I texted the day of the storm, and I just said, hey, how are you guys doing? And she said, we're in a closet. They have three children. They're upper, upper middle class people. They live in a nice house. They're you know born and bred in um, in Puerto Rico. We our, our children were in their wedding, and she said, we have no information. Send us information. So we were texting her, you know, how, how long was it going to take before the storm was done? You know, how bad was the rain going to be? Just so that they would know. They said they didn't think their concrete walls of their house would hold up. Um, it turns out they're fine now, but just the amount of devastation, and it just sat on top of them for so long. It was absolutely terrifying. Yeah. So, okay. So cell phone st- infrastructure is out and, and the grid infrastructure, electricity infrastructure is completely destroyed. It looks like uh, the, 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 the Commonwealth's biggest oil fired power plants weren't, didn't take a direct hit, but the grid itself is just completely destroyed. What do we know about the state of infrastructure? No, the grid is completely destroyed. And, and the worst part about it for Puerto Rico is that it's actually got a mountainous sort of area and you know, to b- rebuild the grid in the mountainous area, they actually have to use helicopter to bring in each utility pole and center it into place. And so, I mean, it really will take four to six months. I mean, the island nations, just to be clear, and, you know, I also want to make sure that we're including the U.S. Virgin Islands in this conversation because it was also destroyed. I think St. Croix was saved and then Maria came through and St. Croix got destroyed as well. And so it was just, it's just devastation all around in the U.S. territories in the Caribbean. And, um, and, and so, you know, and on top of that, PREPA was $9 billion in debt. So they hadn't really done a lot of the hardening that they could have done on their infrastructure over the last few years because they just were too broke to be able to do it. So it was already vulnerable to begin with. And so, you know, everyone is basically moving to diesel generators. And then, of course, because of the, the challenges of being an island, they're already sort of running low on diesel fuel and, you know, won't be able to run those generators much longer. It, the Just to give you some perspective of the scope of the devastation, PREPA has uh, nearly 2,500 miles of transmission lines, and many of those lines go over that really mountainous terrain, heavily forested terrain, as Jigger said. And so that makes it incredibly difficult to rebuild the grid. Um, again, the power plants were were saved but uh, the the transmission infrastructure is pretty much completely destroyed, and they have another thirty one thousand miles of distribution lines, which were pretty much taken down too. Prepa didn't just ignore some maintenance; I mean, they blatantly cut back because of their severe debts. So this was uh, a utility set up for failure, not just by the hurricane, but 
because of its financial condition as well. There were a number of factors here that just created such a horrible situation. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's even worse than that, which is that, you know, Puerto Rico is now, you know, sort of our Greece. I mean, you know, under the Obama administration, they basically set up a Puerto Rico sort of authority that basically sits above the governor um, and works for the bondholders and basically says to everybody, you must have austerity so we can pay back the bonds. And so, you know, a lot of this was actually just driven by this group as well, which, of course, the bondholders now hate because they're releasing cash for, you know, Puerto Rico and the relief efforts and that kind of stuff. But I think, you know, in the same way that the, the D.C. government was sort of under this receivership for years, Puerto Rico is now under that. And, you know, it's it's a it's a really devastating situation. The other thing I think is important is there's a lot of people out there who say, well, the Puerto Ricans sort of did this to themselves. They're the ones who took on $74 billion in debt as a country and then $9 billion in PREPA. But you know, the thing that people don't realize is Puerto Rico's lost almost 15% of its population since 2000, right? They used to be almost 4 million people, and now they're down to like 3.4 million people. And after this hurricane, hurricane, my sense is they're going to probably lose almost another million people will we'll probably leave the island to New York and Florida. And so it's hard to pay back your debts when your people are leaving. And coincidentally, they lost, uh, PREPA lost a lot of employees because of that migration. Yeah. Because those guys, you know, basically could get really good paying salaries. As you know, the utility industry in the United States is in desperate situation to find people um, with you know, they've got a graying population and a lot of folks are retiring and not a lot of folks want to go work for the utility. So another thing they have working against them is that they're not a state. So they're all U.S. citizens, but they're neither a state nor are they independent. So they're in this kind of gray area, just like Washington, D.C. And um, even though they did not vote for statehood, um, it, it would make a ton of sense. They would get lots more benefits uh, directly to them, the way states get benefits and block grants. But of course, uh, just as it with D.C., it's hard to imagine that happening because they would get two senators, um, which would very likely be Democrats. And, you know, the one other thing I just want to say, which, I, you know, obviously probably should go without saying, but I think a lot of folks don't know is, I mean, Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens. Um they have the right to, to go to any U.S. state whenever they want and, you know, without, you know, papers and all that stuff. They're just U.S. citizens. And I think that it's devastating to me to find out that, like, yesterday, they said that 1.5 million Puerto Ricans um, can't get drinking water, right? I mean, drinking water is something you can only live without for a few days and then you die. Yeah, luckily, um, the president did make the Jones Act exemption, which was a huge deal because the Jones Act um, allows that uh, ships that fly different flags of different countries to be able to dock at Puerto Rico. And that's really important so they can get aid from other countries as well as the U.S. Yeah, that happened just just hours before we pressed the record button here. So, okay, we're in this state of devastation, and it does bring us to this bigger question. I mean, right now, Puerto Rico is in emergency mode, and there's not a robust conversation around rebuilding quite yet. There's a unique situation here, right? Puerto Rico imports a lot of fuel oil. I think uh, oil represents two-thirds of electricity generation in the Commonwealth. Uh, it's very expensive. I think their average generation cost is you know retail electricity cost is 20 cents 21 cents a kilowatt hour solar is a lot cheaper now so are batteries 
And you have things like liquefied natural gas as well. So you can create hybrid LNG, uh, solar PV, and battery systems that are a lot cheaper. So you have a whole suite of technologies that are much better than oil. Um, how does that all coming together to create a new conversation for eventual rebuilding in a place like Puerto Rico? Well, I think it's important to sort of, you know, sort of start from basic principles. Um, we have about 88 megawatts of of distributed generation in Puerto Rico, rooftop, a lot of it's residential. Um, Sonova and a couple of other companies have been very active there. Um, we've got about 200 plus megawatts of utility scale uh, solar PV. Um, much of it is intact, but is in a state of disrepair. Um, I know Sonova is spending a whole bunch of people down there to try to like, you know, get the the systems repaired and, and batteries added and that kind of stuff. But I think the first thing the solar industry can really do is figure out like, you know, how to help in this sort of disaster period. And I think it's important to note that the solar industry during Sandy was still, I would say, immature and not really capable of organizing itself in a way to actually help. Um, today, I think the solar industry is much larger. SIA is much larger. I think Abby Hopper is doing a great job um, and is trying to really communicate with the solar industry about how to, um, you know, how to organize itself. Because there's a lot of one-off efforts. I mean, people like Goal Zero have done a great job. They're owned by NRG, and they emptied out their warehouse for for the for Houston for Harvey, and now is, Goal Zero is a portable solar company. Yeah, for portable generators, and then now they've got additional inventory that they've got in the last two weeks that they're now looking to send to Puerto Rico and trying to air freight it there. And it's, you know, expensive, right? For a small company like, like Goal Zero, I mean, you know, doing this on their own is not easy. You've got other folks that have solar generators as well. You've got solar lanterns that are getting there because people just need basics like, like cell phone charging, right? Um, you've got a number of solar folks who want to volunteer down there. People, they need tax. There's 80 strong solar companies in Puerto Rico that are trying to, you know, do what they can to, you know, get their customer systems repaired as well as to help more generally, but they need more help. And so I think organizing all of that philanthropy within the solar industry is also something the solar industry really hasn't done before. Is this a philanthropic effort or is there some way to make a business case for PREPA? Or is it a combination of both? Like, I'm trying to understand what the long-term play is here beyond the initial uh, emergency response. I don't know that we have the luxury of having that conversation yet, right? There's certainly been analysis done. There's a great organization called the um, Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, and they have been blogging and talking about Puerto Rico for a very long time. Um, and they have a detailed review of PREPA's um, transformation plans pre-hurricane, which was basically to go 100% natural gas, which for those who don't know, I mean, natural gas is far worse than diesel for island nations, right? There is no storage of natural gas. Natural gas basically like is a real-time um, fuel, right? So if, if your pumps on natural gas fail you don't have gas. Like that's how the natural gas works, right? So um, like diesel at least gets stored at every single site. And so it's far more resilient, right? And so they've got a detailed analysis why natural gas is basically a disaster for, for PREPA in Puerto Rico. Um, 
And I think there's a lot of us who are looking at microgrids and other things, but I think it's important to note that we're not, we don't have the luxury of having those conversations right now. We're really sitting here talking about life and death um, and, you know, figuring out what the solar industry can do to help save people's lives. Yeah. And one thing that Congress can do in, in addition to the Jones Act and just sending money is to make sure that the Stafford Act, which is the the act that governs how FEMA spends its money um, allows FEMA to give money back to utilities and other organizations that can build, really put language in to build more resilient, to make sure that you can, you don't just use the money to build, put the same thing back that was there. This is what we were trying to get done with Sandy. And in the end, we didn't, um, they just ended up throwing a bunch of money their way. And then the states were able to come up with their own programs. But in this case, it would be helpful to have, you know, here are some pieces of equipment that, you know, you're going to get credit for purchasing and whether that's solar and a battery, you know, you need some integration um, inverters and things like that, that would be really helpful for FEMA to put some money into that and have congressional language to spell it out. So going back to your question, Stephen, on how people can make money. And so I think, you know, getting this stuff done right now, I think is important. And it's more philanthropy than making money. But What's going to happen in the next two weeks is that FEMA is going to have to identify critical infrastructure, which it's largely already done, and then needs to actually um, strengthen that infrastructure. So a lot of resorts, for instance, in Puerto Rico are going to be needed to house relief workers um, and other personnel. And so a lot of those folks are on diesel right now, but they don't have much diesel fuel left. And so putting in microgrids there where we put in solar with battery backup to actually run these resorts... Uh, really matter. I think solar hot water is going to play a big role in some of that stuff as well, because Puerto Rico doesn't have affordable fuels for hot water. Um, and so there's going to be a lot of hardening of that infrastructure and FEMA will pay for all of that. Um, and so I think it's important for people to look out for for that and to start getting their people lined up and the equipment lined up to be able to do that. If folks out there want to donate to the relief effort and maybe want a solar-specific or energy-specific uh, charity or organization to donate to, do you have any in mind that are specifically working in Puerto Rico? So um, I don't want to overstep bounds here. Abby uh, Hopper has tasked Dana Sleeper within SIA to get that information out to the solar industry. We've been going back and forth on that. Um, there's some organizations that I know of that I trust um, because they're, you know, some of the largest companies in Puerto Rico. So like, for instance, um, you know, New Energy Puerto Rico, which is run by a guy named um, Alejandro uh, Urarte, um, is one of the, you know, most prominent guys down there. He's a YPL member. He has built uh, over a thousand of Sunova systems, built our systems down there. Very credible guy. I think that Dana's putting together information on like, um, nonprofits that take donations who will not, you know, seize them and sell them on the black market and that kind of stuff. So I think C is planning on putting an email out this week um, to to tell people which charities to donate excess equipment to that they have lying around, which I know every solar company has leftover panels and inverters and other stuff available. Um, so I think SIA is going to do that. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here and talk about our sponsor. It's Mission Solar Energy, a U.S. solar manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. 
You know, third-party testing has shown that Mission Solar modules have the highest PTC ratings of any American manufactured module. This means that their modules maintain higher output in real-world conditions when compared to any other American modules. Mission Solar's modules are subjected to multiple quality checks throughout the manufacturing process and endure stringent quality and reliability testing. Each product exceeds industry requirements and is backed by an independent 25-year linear warranty. To learn more about Mission Solar's high-quality modules and to see them get run over and shot by a tank and hit with a flamethrower, visit missionsolar.com. Well, we're going to spend the remainder of the show now looking back at some of the most profound changes that we've witnessed in energy over the last four years. Then we'll examine some of our own presumptions and re-examine changes we thought would occur but haven't. So, Catherine, over to you. What would you pinpoint as the most striking change from your perspective over the years since we've been doing this show? So the the big story for me is energy storage. Um, in 2013, California put the mandate in place for 1.3 gigawatts of storage in California with the three major utilities, and that really changed the game for storage. So prices have gone down 70% in batteries. I think that's going to continue to be the trend. Um, and the values are continuing to be... Um, you know, better compensated. We still have a ways to go on that. But I, th- my sense is over the last four years, based on where energy storage was when we were first started talking, and it was ESA was kind of like a um, a science club. <laughs> it's really come a, an enormous way. And there are a lot of other stories too, but to me, that's the biggie. And you can see it in the way these conferences are organized too. At the ESA's National Storage Conference, over the years, since about 2014, 2015, you really notice a maturation where the biggest companies are coming in. You get a sense that people are talking about real deals, and um, it feels like a it feels like a legitimate industry. But around 2012, 2013, you're right; it did feel a bit like a science club. And uh, Jigger, what about you? What was uh, the biggest change or changes from your perspective? Well, I mean, I, you know, around 2013, we were talking about John Wellinghoff's tenure at um, the FERC. And, and, you know, one of his more controversial orders was the one that sort of mandated ISOs integrate um, demand response and load control into their, their structure. And I've actually found it very heartening that utility companies, I think, across the country really have embraced DERs and figured out you know, what they should be doing with them. Now, I, don't, I certainly don't think they're doing it fast enough, and I haven't I don't think that they're actually providing enough reimbursement to the entrepreneurial companies. But I would say that almost without exception, every utility company is planning for grid flexibility through DERs to be part of the way that they manage the grid going forward. And and I and I, I didn't really expect that. I thought they were gonna, you know, be a lot slower at that. Yeah, and FERC is even I feel like they're pretty close to issuing a rulemaking on storage and the DER NOPER. Yeah, I don't. I don't think the utilities are fighting it as hard. I think that they recognize that their grid is highly inefficient and has been really since the '90s, and that these tools are really used to make their grid more efficient, the system more efficient, and they should be trying to make the system more efficient. So, just to back up your point, um, around 2012, 2013, APS was in the midst of a multi-million dollar campaign against the solar industry in the state. And since then, they have 
develop their own internal program to test out new rate designs for solar plus storage. Um, they're developing their own, you know, residential solar deployment model, and they're using this to kind of test out how to how to take solar plus storage on the residential behind the meter side and use it as a grid asset. Same with Duke Energy, which um, a lot of people have criticized as anti-renewable. This is a company that developed the coalition of the willing to test new interoperability standards for distributed resources. Southern Company uh, bought the microgrid company PowerSecure and is now partnering with Advanced Microgrid Solutions to develop new uh, behind-the-meter storage models. So some of the utilities that have historically been seen as fighters of renewables have behind the scenes developed some of the more interesting projects that you referred to. And remember, it, early in 2013, before we started taping, Richard Kaufman was named the energy czar of New York State. Audrey Zibelman was brought in that fall. And then in April of 2014, uh, the REV initiative in New York was announced. And, you know, we can debate how it's been going, but it has really opened up that conversation. And a lot of states have been watching it and, and trying to figure out what they're going to do as well. I thought about this question from a bunch of different angles, and there were a bunch of individual storylines that I thought about picking. So I grouped them together into some broader trends. The first is geopolitical. The economic readiness of low carbon technologies has completely changed the game for future planning, which is why we now have basically every country in the world rallying around this shift from, as you put it, Jigger, shared sacrifice to climate wealth. It's not theoretical anymore. It's, you know, low carbon technologies are just often the cheaper option. And it's why even though America has, in theory, walked away from its climate commitments, the glue has held together on international climate talks. Um, I'd say the second is macroeconomic. And we've sparred over this on the podcast, you know, what the renewed interest of oil and gas majors and renewables actually means. I do think it's meaningful. And in fact, it's one of the reasons why Green Tech Media was acquired by our now parent company, Wood McKenzie, because the clients they serve, the top oil, gas and mining companies in the world, they were all asking, what should our low carbon strategy be? And they needed a more detailed answer. Um, you know, oil prices are chronically low. We didn't expect that around 2013. Uh, they've stayed low. It's costing more to get every new unit of energy. Countries around the world are developing carbon pricing policies. Uh, you know, the worries about stranded assets are getting more real. And this idea of electrifying everything is actually becoming a real possibility on the planning horizon. So the, the oil and gas super majors have shifted their attention to this industry in a very real way. And of course, that's, that's um, hit the biggest global utilities, too. You know, since we started this podcast, RWE, Enel, NG, National Grid, all these big global utilities have restructured themselves to focus exclusively on these trends. Yeah, it's interesting because over the last four years, I've been involved in the World Economic Forum, and I've watched all of the majors and all of those big utilities shift so much in that amount of time. My third story is technical. And if you look across the spectrum of manufacturing and R&D from solar cells to batteries to LEDs to sensors to other power electronics, the ability to shave costs while improving performance has been consistent. Um, and in some cases, it's just shattered expectations. And you look at areas where skeptics thought we'd flatline, like crystalline silicon solar or lithium ion batteries, we're still shaving away costs steadily. 
pennies after pennies after pennies. And at the same time, autonomy in vehicles has taken a lot of people by surprise too because of how much simulated driving companies have been able to do in the last four or five years. So I think a lot of people have been caught flat-footed by more conventional technologies that they thought would bottom out. Yeah, and I think that we're going to have another wave and another tipping point, just as we have seen for some of these technologies like energy storage of consumer engagement and blockchain and machine learning so that all this AI that uh, that you're talking about, Stephen, is going to really start becoming more pervasive and get DERs out a lot faster than they are now even. And let's turn to Twitter. We had uh, a few people tell us what they thought were the biggest changes and um, what they wanted us to discuss. The first one, oh boy, I'm going to engage in a little nepotism here. My soon-to-be mother-in-law tweeted at us, and she said that in uh, Pompano Beach there in Florida, that now all the street lamps are solar, there's a ton of new electric car stations, um, all by the condo units, and that they can see all these like small infrastructure improvements around EVs and solar and LEDs. So that's actually one that was interesting to me because in the last couple of years, as I've gone back to my hometown in New Hampshire or traveled through Vermont or here in Massachusetts where I live now, you can see all these solar projects pop up and it's actually there like right before our very eyes. And you can see the transition happening in the neighborhoods where I grew up all of a sudden there's solar everywhere. So I thought that was uh, a change, a very noticeable change on my end too, uh, just in the last three or four years. Well, I mean, when I was first selling solar, we always had this sort of Kevin Bacon, you know, seven degrees of solar, where you're like, how many people do you have to know who know people who know people who know people who actually own a solar system? Um, and today I think that number is like, Two, like, I mean, you know, I think pretty much everyone knows somebody within two degrees. And increasingly, it's all within one degree. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's incredibly important for people to see, to see this stuff in action, to know that it actually exists. For those in California, you know, or Germany, they've seen it for a long time. But, you know, in, in the Northeast, for example, it's still relatively new. Or in Appalachia, where my brother built a solar farm. Yeah, right, right, right. What about low oil prices? We had a few people tweet at us about the suppression of oil prices, which I don't think anyone expected four years ago. How, uh, in your mind, has that changed the landscape for either the way oil and gas companies operate or the competitiveness of technologies? Well, I used to work at the Office of Transportation Technologies back in the 90s. And when oil was, you know, cheap and gasoline was a dollar a gallon. And I remember us always saying, like, if we could get gasoline to be consistently above $2.25 a watt, then all of our technologies would be cost effective. A gallon? And A gallon, sorry. <laughs> and, and that's where we are, right? So I think this notion that oil prices are high or low is sort of all relative. It's still grown far faster than inflation since 1999. Um and is taking a huge slice of, you know, middle class and poor people's incomes in the United States. And so, you know, for many people around the country, their car is actually more expensive than their housing. Um, and so I think we need solutions to that. Um, part of those solutions are efficiency, right? That's the cafe work that we've been doing uh, around corporate average fuel economy standards. Um, and part of that's alternative fuels. 
But, you know, the problem with alternative fuels is not really cost or oil prices where it is today. The problem with alternative fuels is that they're not actually structured in the same way that the electricity markets are. So if you set up a, you know, let's say a biodiesel plant or, or an ethanol plant, and you go to the local county and say, well, you guys use 10 million gallons of fuel a year. Why don't you sign a PPA with me for the next 10 years to buy this at a fixed price for the next 10 years, right? Which is what we do in solar and wind and stuff all the time. And we don't index it to wholesale prices or whatever else. It's a fixed price. But for whatever reason, that whole structure is like not possible in the fuel space and it prevents them from getting low cost financing. So the oil industry is saying, if you want us to fund this stuff, we need 20% plus returns, which is not easy to do. Catherine, what do you think about EV adoption as it relates to low oil prices and thus low gasoline prices? What can we say about consumer preferences uh, versus just the straight economics of EVs? Yeah, it's interesting because I, I think about this a lot as to, you know, how do we really transform our mobility system as, you know, as we think about the future of energy and the and how do we get to really zero carbon emission future. Um, and I think on on EVs, it's so much about, you know, consumer consumers choosing what they do with their car, where they get their energy to some degree, although a lot of consumers don't even think about that. Um, and I, I think that over the last couple of years, especially range anxiety is has not been as much of an issue. So people aren't talking about that as much. Um, I still think it's not going to be really a fast transition because the incumbents are are really strong. And until the car companies decide we're changing our business model and they get all their distributors to change and change consumer behavior, it's a lot to ask. I really think this is a matter of comfort, right? I mean, a lot of folks are just not sure, even if they don't have range anxiety, they're just not sure whether electric vehicles actually meet their lifestyle. And it's the utility com- company's like, responsibility to get folks in those cars and say, look, here's a car, take it for a month, bring it back to me after a month and see how you and your family liked it. And you know, I think when you look at the studies, the studies show that like anyone who actually has driven an EV for some period of time like that, you know, falls in love with it and keeps it. So, you know, I think it's really the utility company saying we have to do more than an $800 rebate. Yeah, but people don't, when their cars are falling apart, I call NPR and have them haul it away. But a lot of people drive it onto a lot of their local dealership and say, all right, I want the next great thing. And that's when someone needs to say, you need to get this. This is an EV and you're going to love it more than you've ever loved any other car. Well, that would be great if that occurred, but I think you and I both agree that's not going to happen, like as you said, because of the incumbency. So if the utility company wants to break it, they've got to say to people, well, how do we reach out to these people? Why don't we first focus on people that you know, get reimbursed for mileage and go after them? And why don't we next go after people that you know, have to travel far for their work or you know, whatever it is? And, and I think they have to systematically go through folks and say, look, you know, here, just take this car home and plug it in and tell me how you like it. Another listener asks us about utility scale solar pricing. And when we started this show around 2013, we were regularly seeing power purchase agreement prices in the $100 to $125 per megawatt hour range. And now they're in the $20 to $40 to $50 range. Jigger, 
in 2013, was it inevitable that we were going to hit the prices we're hitting now? Yeah, like, I mean, I think by 2013, we knew, because people were already bidding four or five cents a kilowatt hour by 2013. If you remember the San Antonio um, PPA that like Sun Edison had won, and then the Austin one and recurrent energy had bid and people were bidding five cents, they weren't deploying. So the projects that were getting deployed in 2013 were at $120 a megawatt hour. But the projects that people were winning on an RFP basis, were absolutely already at five cents a kilowatt hour. And so I think we knew that that was coming. Um, and I think GTM was already predicting module prices by 2013 going below 50 cents a watt. So I think we were there. I, you know, I think that the part that's really amazed me since 2013 on that front is really around how much faster people, um, you know, like adopted trackers. I don't know that we thought that everyone was going to go to trackers. Back then, First Solar was doing fixed tilt, and that's what everybody was doing. Um, and then you also had a lot, have a lot of power electronics breakthroughs. I mean, back then, you know, you were just assuming 20% losses from DC to AC. Now, I think we're looking at less than 15% losses for these new systems. And also, another listener asked us about the decline of coal, which around 2012, 2013 was seeming also somewhat inevitable. Uh, Catherine, any thoughts on uh, the decline of coal? Uh, no, it does continue, as you say. And uh, regardless of the the new administration and Trump saying that you can just wash it off with water somehow and it'll be clean, um, I mean, it's, it's not going to Continue. I mean, there there may be some that hang on a little bit longer as a result of some of the rules that um, the administration is is considering. But in the end, there the economics just aren't there. I mean, I do think that we should be a little bit uh, global about this conversation. I remember I was on stage with Byron Dorgan um, calling coal an abomination, and you know, I think it was still sort of not acceptable to say that back then. And I think uh, it was not clear that China had actually turned the corner in 2013, uh, as well as India, around uh, coal deployment. That really happened around that year, maybe 2014, when it, you, you, that happened, although you didn't actually find out about it until the rearview mirror in late 2015 is, I think, when we finally realized that it was happening, when the U.S. and China announced its uh, partnership to reduce emissions. Um so I do think that coal was still viewed as something that was growing globally, and the data points were not yet on our side back in 2013. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. So speaking of maybe predictions that didn't turn out to be true, uh, many people thought that coal would continue to grow. Let's revisit some things we assumed would happen but haven't. We already know, one, that Apple still hasn't acquired Tesla, which was Jigger's prediction a couple years ago, and I'll never let him forget it. And they it. are regretting it. They are <laughs> regretting it every single day. They'd be a trillion-dollar company if that happened. <laughs> but what else? Uh, Catherine, any assumptions that you would revisit about things that you thought either publicly or privately? I'm not a big predictor, but one thing I'm super disappointed about is how polarized the climate conversation has devolved and it's just so um, so many people are divided people are using um, anti-facts they're 
that to me has been appalling. When I was, I used to testify as an expert witness on renewables for the Republicans, as a matter of fact, back on science committee, you know, a couple decades ago. And I just remember there, the committee, the science committee was run by scientists. So Vern Ehlers was a physicist and he was on the committee and people took it seriously. And I'm stunned still at how that's devolved into this anti-science narrative and people not believing science and just completely ignoring facts. And I think that's it's dangerous and it's terrifying. And I, it's hard to even know what to do to combat that except just to keep on saying the same sets of facts and keep on moving forward. But that's something that has taken me a little bit by surprise. So Jigger, any other assumptions that you would also revisit? You you tend to make some pretty bold pronouncements on this show. Well, you know, um, no. Look, I. It wasn't a judgment. It no, was just, I mean, that's, I, that's. I think most of them come <laughs> true, so I'm not sure what to say. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying that that I'm not the type to make predictions, and you are. So. <laughs> well, I mean, look. So one more thing, I would say. Um, I do think in 2013, there was a lot of pessimism around Alec and the Koch brothers going after solar. And I think that what I said back then, which I think has come true, is we defeated them all. Like there was a slight hiccup in Nevada for a year and a half, and there was still a little bit of a hiccup in Arizona. But Florida is completely open for business now. Illinois is completely open for business. Ohio is back open for business. We are absolutely crushing it across the country. And it's just amazing to me how many people keep betting against our industry it's it's interesting that you bring that up because in our first show i think our third topic was uh grappling with the Koch brothers battle against state renewable energy targets and net metering we were just in the throes of that fight um but but there's a there's been a win clearly on the renewable side on the climate side though to bring in Catherine's point the Koch brothers have won, hands down. They made it impossible to talk about climate change in Congress. I mean... Well, I, I would... I mean, I mitigate that a little bit in that, yes, there are people who've really polarized it, and I think Koch brothers are largely responsible for that because they're funding everybody's election. At the same time, you know, there is a climate caucus, so that gives me some hope, and it's, you know, it's it's what they call Noah's Ark, so whenever... Uh, Democrat joins, a Republican also has to join, so they go two by two. Um, but that's their uh, – Paris is still going, and so it's it's still going strong with, with or without the U.S. States are still moving forward. So, yes, I think this is another hiccup. But in the end, honestly, uh, as Jigger says, because of the economics and because everybody is mobilizing um, around clean energy, I think that that will get us through. Right. So you can – you can still have climate policy in this country without talking about climate change. And that feeds into my previous point about the, the geopolitical shift. Like America can basically say, hey, we're pulling out of our climate commitments, whatever that means in the Trump administration. It probably doesn't actually mean anything. But like we can just stall and drag our feet. But progress continues. And that's a very important distinction to make politically. Um, well, and as fast as it would have otherwise, like, I mean, that's yeah. the thing is that like, I don't think I, I think if everyone believed in climate change and everything was all hunky dory, I don't think it'd be any faster. I mean, that's the thing is that, like, we're moving as fast as our politics will let us move on renewable energy and electric vehicles and all sorts of stuff. In fact, 
I mean, in California, you actually have a recall election or something of some like city council member because they dared to say that people should get out of their cars and do car sharing, right? I mean, you know, there's still a lot of third rails, even in places like California, where, you know, folks are having a hard time with this level of change. Yeah, for sure. That actually brings me to my final point, which was, um, I think a lot of companies or people who invest or just folks who generally believe in the inevitability of clean tech have long thought that these technologies themselves, that because these technologies are themselves accelerating quickly, that adoption and integration would happen at a, a really fast pace. And there's been, I think, a, a, in the in recent years, a collective realization that the time it takes to get a product to market and build a real sustainable bu- business with big customers is many years longer than assumed. Um, the past four years has only proven that further. I have seen over the course of the decade or so that I've been covering this market, hundreds of companies come out swinging and hundreds of companies tire themselves out and eventually fall to the floor because they've been swinging so hard. And I, and like, I think it's proven that you need to be realistic, find sources of capital that understand that time frame and that realistic approach, and maybe even branch out into other markets as a way to keep the company going in the meantime. We knew that in 2013. This is not a, a sudden realization, but the last four years of steady but grinding progress is evidence of that. Well, I think that's a good end to our reflection. We had a few other questions on Twitter that we didn't get to, but I think that's a, a good summary of what's happened over the last few years. Uh, we're going to tell you something you don't know now to wrap up the show. Jigger, what's yours? So I'm a big fan of uh, of uh, Ben Inskeep on Twitter. And one of the things he posted the other day was about how FERC continues to allow a return on equity of 14% for new interstate gas pipelines. And this rate was first set in 1997 when interest rates were double today's average. And they just haven't been revised since. And so it's basically this giant loophole by which natural gas pipeline investors continue to make outsized returns, which is why Warren Buffett can make money on investing in these pipelines and others can make money investing in these pipelines, even though they have much higher return expectations. Catherine, what's yours? Yeah, I have two quick things. One is that um, today in the Federal Register, um, which is September 28th, um, the Department of Transportation published regulation that had been the subject of a lot of legal scrutiny because the Trump administration was slow walking the publishing of it. And it's really for the FHA to require um, states to track um, highway emissions and come up with plans to reduce goals. So that's uh, and, and to come up with goals for uh, congestion mitigation, and air quality improvement. So it's pretty great that it was published today. So that's a that is a really um, positive move. The other thing is that Senator Heinrich, a Democrat from New Mexico, and Senator Heller, a Republican from Nevada, introduced S-1868, which is the standalone investment tax credit for energy storage this week. And I was really pleased. I think it's the fourth Congress now that I've worked on it and that it's been introduced. Uh, We're trying to work on it on the House side, too, just so that it's out there and ready in case there's an opportunity to slip it into a piece of legislation so that storage could get its own tax credit. That's, uh, That's the hope. I was reading this article that I saw go around on Twitter about 
The Future of Mobile Devices, written by the New York Times in 1992. And it was incredible. You've got to read this article. Uh, here's a good quote. Uh, again, 1992, from a writer writing about how people envision the future of personal phones. Stuck in a traffic on a business trip, an executive carrying a personal communicator could send and receive electronic mail and fax messages from anywhere in the country. She could also call up a local map on a 3-inch by 5-inch screen, draw a line between her current position, confirmed by satellite positioning signals, and in her intended destination. And the device would give her specific driving instructions. Surely these are just predictions for now, but they sure are fun to think about. And there's this quote in the beginning of the story from the then chairman of Intel who said that the this idea was a pipe dream driven by greed. And I couldn't help but think about how many people just crap all over renewables or batteries or electric cars and ignore these incredible trends that we're seeing and uh, we're already realizing. And I just... Uh, I just couldn't help but think about the changes we're seeing in the energy industry as I read this particular article. Okay, that does it for our walk, our jog through the last four years of energy. We're going to wrap up here. Just a reminder that we're going to be off for the next couple of weeks, actually three weeks. Um, we'll be back the week of October 23rd. Uh, if you need some more energy listening, go listen to the Interchange podcast. Um, Thanks to uh, Catherine and Jigger for spending the last 350 hours or so with me and all of you all. Uh, I greatly enjoy their company, and they help me understand what the heck is going on in this industry. So, Catherine, enjoy the next few weeks. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks. I don't know if you remember, but before we taped the first episode, I said, what should I wear? Because <laughs> uh, I really did not know what a podcast was. Now I do. I don't remember that, but I do remember that as soon as we flipped on the tape, you were gold, and here we are, 200 episodes later, you're still gold. Jigger, uh, enjoy the next few weeks. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, well, you know, our happy millennial, m millennials getting married. Exactly, yeah. I am uh, off for my wedding and honeymoon. You all enjoy the next few weeks as well. I will catch you very soon in late October. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com.